Well, if you've got a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 5. That's where we'll be starting and the text that we'll be reflecting on together this morning. Uh, this brief sermon series is called To Walk Through the Beatitudes. Um, it's, uh, we're, we're taking a brief break from our series on the Psalms uh, to walk through the, uh, the Beatitudes, and it'll take us a few weeks and um, just a kind of uh, way to start the new year, if you'd like. Uh, being reminded by Jesus' definition of the blessed life. And, um, well, before I I get any further, why don't we look at the text together? Matthew chapter 5, we'll be focusing on verse 4 this morning, but I am going to start in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he, that is Jesus, he went up on the mountain. When he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This is the word of the Lord, and again we say, thanks be to God. So Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5, begins what we call the Sermon on the Mount with these beatitudes. That is, it's a fancy word for blessings. The, The blessings that he is giving, blessed are these, blessed are these, blessed are these, and so on and so forth. And uh, there's been no uh, shortage of ink spilled talking about what it means to be blessed. Um, and that perhaps could be its own, I don't know, sermon, that could be its own lecture, certainly, which I won't, uh, I won't uh, subject you to all that this morning, except to say, very simply, if you need a, um, a synonym for blessed, as Jesus is using it here in the Sermon on the Mount, The closest you're going to get, please notice I said closest you're going to get, not perfect equivalent, but the closest you're going to get is happy, okay? Happy are those. Now, again, that's as close as you're going to get is is my conclusion on it. Happy can be used in a lot of different ways in our own kind of parlance today, uh, but it's the kind of happiness that is is contentment, but again, we sometimes I think we use contentment as like, I'm going to pretend to be happy in a really hard situation. But, but no, actually contented, at peace, happy with, uh, uh, with life, uh, not because everything is going well, but because everything is, everything belongs to God, and, and you are uh, under His blessing. But verse 4 is pretty weird. I mean, kind of work that into the, to what I've just told you. Blessed are they... Blessed are those, excuse me, blessed are those, happy are those who mourn. Happy are those who are sad. This one is confusing. Happy are the unhappy. Jesus is talking about mourning here, right? M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, mourning. Um, And we're going to explore a few things about that this morning. Both the mourning that Jesus talks about and the comfort that he promises. Blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And so it's going to come to you in uh, three points, at least three things I want to show you this morning. Which, by the way, Bud recently challenged me to put some of the content of the sermon on slides. So here I am trying to do that this morning. It's real, real, real cutting edge. Oh, oh yeah, okay. So if you, you note takers, you'll love this, all right? So, uh, so. <laughs> Uh, so, so at least three things I want to explore with you this morning. Why mourning is necessary, why mourners are comforted, and then what we do with that comfort. Why mourning is necessary, why, mourni- why mourners are comforted, according to Jesus' promises here, and then uh, what we do with that comfort. 
So the first point, why mourning is necessary. Let's start just with a broad definition of mourning that I get from Sinclair Ferguson. He says, mourning is grief and sorrow caused by profound loss. Okay? Grief and sorrow caused by profound loss. So this one is especially for, say, the, 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 uh, the kids in our congregation listening this morning. If, that's, if, if I keep saying mourning and you're thinking about mourning and night, that's not what we're talking about. Mourning is a, a state of sadness, a state of grief and sorrow caused by profound loss. The most common time that you hear about mourning is at funerals. That's usually when the word gets used the most because that's when people are mourning or grieving the profound loss of a friend, of a family member, of a mom or dad, of a brother or sister. So we are talking this morning about mourning about a particular, it's more than an emotional state, but it's at least that much, an emotional state that attends to repentance. Now, that may seem like a sudden shift, but I'm going to explain it. Mourning is not repentance itself, but it's part of repentance. And so, it may sound odd that, I, that I've, I've jumped to repentance, because maybe you thought we were going to talk about death and mourning over death. Is this text about that? Let me address that briefly. Because this tends to be where our minds go, as I said, when we hear the term, blessed are those that mourn, probably where your mind went, where my mind went, uh, goes when I read that text kind of automatically, with or without my permission, is right to a funeral. Blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And your mind, kind of the, 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 the DVD player in your mind, goes right to a funeral. But this is deeper than that. It goes deeper than that because this beatitude, this word of blessing, blessed are they, comes right after verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And what I'm going to try to show you over the next few weeks is that these beatitudes are connected. That one comes after another in the list for a reason. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so what, what I want to show you this morning is that Jesus is still talking about the poor in spirit. In other words, think about it this way. Blessed are the poor in spirit. They're poor in spirit. They're spiritually impoverished. They know they're spiritually impoverished. They know they have a long way to go spiritually. They know there's so much sin in them, and they mourn over it. You see? So blessed are the poor in spirit, and, and then the very next bit, Blessed are those who mourn. Mourn over what? Well, being poor in spirit, being spiritually impoverished. A quote from uh, D.A. Carson, one of my favorite commentators. He says, mournfulness in the Beatitudes, mournfulness can be understood as the emotional counterpart to poverty of spirit. Okay? So poverty of spirit, I, I know that just as, uh, just as I might be hungry for food, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm malnourished spiritually. There's so much growing I need to do, so much sin that still remains in me. So we are talking this, uh, we are talking about this, we're talking this morning about mourning over sin at the individual level. This is personal grief over personal sin. Personal grief over personal sin. Jesus is speaking of proper mourning over our poverty of spirit, Okay? It is one thing to recognize poverty of spirit. Anybody can talk about being a sinner, right? Or uh, being imperfect. 
right? I mean, if, if, you took a, if I took a survey, everybody in this room, even if half of us in the room were not even Christians, are you perfect? Everybody's going to go, well, no. Of course I'm imperfect. Everybody's good at admitting that. In fact, when I survey social media, I sometimes wonder if we're a little too good at it because we, we joke about it. I see this a lot. Like, isn't it hilarious that I can't control my eating habits? Isn't it hilarious that I, uh, I, I, I sleep too much? Isn't it hilarious that I'm like lazy and slothful all the time? Isn't it funny what a total wreck I am? Now, most people today don't have too much of a problem, at least I should qualify, I think in my generation, proclaiming their imperfections. It's quite another to mourn over sin. It's quite another thing to, like proclaiming your imperfections is one thing, mourning over sin is quite another. There's a difference between confession and contrition, okay? Difference between confession and contrition. So when you realize, well, let's, again, let's do step one of the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. So I realize that I'm impoverished in spirit, okay? Three possible responses, I think, to that. You realize your own spiritual poverty, your need for, uh, for, for, for what? Let's just grab some examples for, for a more consistent and rich prayer life. For a, for a deeper knowledge and understanding of the Scriptures, for a greater joy in your own salvation, right? This, this spiritual poverty. Spiritual poverty. Three responses. The first one is to ignore it, okay? First response, possible response, I think, or we're going to go over at least three, uh, is just to ignore it. And I think that's what a lot of people do. They might have a sense that there's some real imperfection dwelling in them, some real indwelling sin, or maybe just spiritual laziness, what some theologians have called functional atheism. So like you don't, you don't say that God doesn't exist, but everything in your life wouldn't look different if he didn't, right? Functional atheism is what, what that's called. Uh, not professed atheism, but just in how you live. It's like if, if, if you didn't believe in God, not a whole lot would look different. So a lot of people ignore it. Maybe because you don't want to think about it because spiritual impoverishment and the, the sin that dwells in you and the weakness that corrupts you is not fun to think about. I freely admit that. Having a baby will make you keenly aware of the sin that still remains in you. I mean, the reason I say, like, uh, the reason I said earlier, I joked Abigail gets her impatience from her daddy is because her daddy has keenly been feeling his impatience like he hasn't in a while. And so she's been confessing that. As I'm doing now, right? Or maybe, maybe you've been told that thinking about it is bad. This is a popular kind of therapeutic thing today, which is like, don't think to, don't dwell too much on your own imperfections, failures, weaknesses, etc. That's like bad for your mental health. And, and look, it, it can be. I'll say more about that in a moment. But, but that's not an excuse to just ignore spiritual poverty, to brush it under the rug, and to try to get on with the business of life apart from what God has said. The second possibility is you excuse it. You excuse it. So to not excuse it would be to, to repent, right? to see the spiritual poverty, to hate it, to repent of it. But to excuse it would be, let's put it this way, any repentance or mourning over sin that incorporates the following phrase, just like everybody else. Right? Oh, what a wicked sinner I am, just like everybody else. Right? You are, you are not to actual mourning over sin yet. You're still excusing your sin. The third option and the, the way we ought to go is to mourn, is to mourn our poverty of spirit. This is what Christians do 
with their own spiritual impoverishment when they recognize it. We don't excuse it or ignore it or anything like that. We don't try to balance out, right? Well, yeah, I've got this sin on the left side, but I have a lot of good stuff on the right side. Uh, Like, sure, I have hidden sin over here, but on the visible side of life, I'm really kind and thoughtful and generous and funny and helpful to people. No, we we don't weigh our sin against our better qualities. Instead, we cry out with the Apostle Paul, what a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Then, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. He is comforted by the answer. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Right there is deliverance, and comfort. And com- you only get to the comfort after the morning. You only get to the comfort after the morning. I remember um, talking to someone very, uh, very, very dear to me. I, I didn't ask their permission before telling this story, so I'll leave the name out. But, but we're, we're, we're talking some years ago about uh, um, how it can be frustrating, <laughs> truth be told, um, to to get to get stuck in traffic people cut you off and then next thing you know you're uh, really bothered by something right um and we were we were conversing about this and 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 this person said to me i got distracted while i was driving and then i i almost i almost hit the guy next to me actually and and then when he drove by he had a little kid in the car and like my heart broke because i realized like i i could hit that guy because of my own inattention so is that, you know, what, what do we do with that? Right? Is, that, is, that a, is that a sin to, to confess? And we kind of thought about it and talked about it for a little while, and I said, you know what, I, th- I think it is, right? Well, so let's, let's say that inattention, carelessness, is a failure to love neighbor. Okay, wow. So now we've, I want you to notice what just happened there. We upgraded, if you like, we upgraded an accident to a sin, now, in most, in a lot of cases, people would say, wait, 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 don't, what are you doing? It, it's just an accident. But here's, here's what's crazy when you do that. When you, when you recognize, for instance, failure to love neighbor, okay, that's a sin, and it gets upgraded to a sin. You know what Jesus does with sins? What does Jesus do with sins? He forgives them. Right? So now you know what to do with it. Right? A moment ago, it was like a mistake that I made that I don't know what to do with. I just feel bad about it. But, well, if it's a failure to love neighbor, that means it's a sin. That means Jesus forgives it, and he means to, uh, as it were, work it out of you. That's the comfort. But we see, and so you have to see the reality of your sin, and you have to, in, in a real way, let it ruin you. Don't, don't try to hide from it, because when you don't hide from your sin, that's where the comfort is. The comfort is the next step. We say with the psalmist, we, uh, I, I, I spoke it to you earlier from Psalm 130 in the assurance of pardon this morning. Lord, if you were to mark iniquities, who could stand? Is that the next one up there, bud? Yeah, if you were to mark iniquities, who could stand? That is the, that's the proper posture towards sin in the Christian life. And what's the very next verse? The comfort. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Blessed are those who mourn. Lord, who could stand? And they will be comforted. With you there is forgiveness. Let me give just a brief kind of caveat and clarification here. When we talk about mourning over sin, I don't mean to say that Matthew 5, uh, chapter 5, verse 4, is not a promise to those who mourn over death or loss. I told you earlier that Matthew chapter 5, verse 4 is often read at funerals, and I think that's okay. 
I think the general principle that those who mourn, again, over death and loss will be comforted, that's also true. Jesus is near to the brokenhearted. But it is good for us to be clear that this verse does not mean that all kinds of grief and mourning are dignified. There is such a thing as sinful mourning and sinful grief. Let me tell you what I mean. In Ezekiel chapter 8, remember way back when, Okay, I did, I did preach through Ezekiel 8. Uh, in verse 14, it mentions a group of women in Jerusalem worshiping idols and weeping for Tammuz. That is, working themselves into a kind of emotional grief frenzy, crying for the death of a pagan god, believing that if they wept and mourned loud enough, he would return. Well, blessed are those who mourn, right? No, <laughs> that's not Ezekiel's point. And he, he doesn't, there's, there's no extension of like, shouldn't we feel bad about those weeping in Jerusalem? No, that is not at all what the Lord through Ezekiel says. Exodus chapter 14 verse 5 tells us that Pharaoh was grieved after he had let Israel go. Well, don't we feel bad for Pharaoh? He lost, the, <laughs> he lost his slaves. So mourn with those who mourn, right? Not in this case, you better not. Or Cain in Genesis 4, when he receives God's curse for his sin of murdering his brother, instead of, instead of mourning his sin and repenting of it, he mourns the punishment. Oh, that's greater than I can bear. Here's my point. There is a way to mourn sinfully or to be grieved sinfully. Not all grief is good or worthy of dignity, and Paul's command to weep with those who weep does sometimes require a bit of discernment because we are not commanded to weep with the sorrow that leads to death, to use Paul's language. That's why it's important to clarify what Jesus is talking about when he says, blessed are they who mourn, and that he is, first of all, talking about personal grief over personal sin. Is that all he's talking about? I don't think so. I think there's a second kind of godly mourning over sin. We've been talking so far about personal mourning over personal sin. There's also mourning over sin, uh, sadness over sin in a more general sense, that is like the sin of your neighbors, sins in your family, sins of your nation, sins of the world. When we survey the sin that is around us, we mourn. Also, when we survey the sin that is in us, we mourn. Whether it's in us or around us. Psalm 119, verse 136, the psalmist says, My eyes shed streams of tears because men do not keep your law. Mourning over the sin that's around him. It's a perfectly reasonable, responsible thing for the Christian to do. Paul speaks of false teachers in Philippians 3. He says, Now I tell you with tears of those, with, with tears, with tears of those who live as enemies of the cross of Christ, mourning over the sin that's around him. This is what, uh, by the way, the, the quotation in, your, in your, the front of your bulletin this morning from D.A. Carson, this is why he says the Christian is to be the, the truest realist. Right? Death is there, must be faced. God is there, will be known by all as Savior and Judge. Sin is there and it's unspeakably ugly. These are realities which will not go away. Sorry, that's my fault. These are realities which will not go away. The man who lives in light of them and rightly assesses himself and his world in light of them cannot but 
mourn, but he will be comforted. And so when we talk about mourning, I want to be clear, this is not to be confused with like what you might call a, a depressive spirit or just like being, and by that I mean like being an Eeyore all the time. Uh, that's not the kind of mourning that's blessed here. Uh, there's an old joke about a, a, a little, say, 10-year-old girl who goes to a petting zoo and she says, that horse must be a Christian, Daddy. He has such a long face. Uh, no, that's, we're, the, the invitation here to mourn, blessed are those who mourn, is not blessed are those who are sad all the time. This can, that can actually, by the way, in some cases be an expression of pride. That's, you, you keep the spotlight of sadness on yourself all the time, reminding everyone how miserable it is to be you. And what that is, it doesn't look like pride, it looks like humility, but actually it's a, it's a kind of grasping uh, for attention. The difference is with, with godly mourning is that it flows out of a recognition of who God is and who you are before God. And so, by way, by way of application, just to kind of pause here for a moment. So what do we do with, uh, with this? Well, wherever God shows you your sin, you should begin by mourning it. You should begin by Daring to be brokenhearted over your sin. The Christian is one who is constantly mourning over sin because God in His kindness is constantly revealing it. We do not reach a point where we stop this good work. We don't reach a point where we stop this good work. And so if you feel, I mean, if you're a Christian and you feel like, I, you know, I, I, I just keep finding more sin. Good! <laughs> that means the Holy Spirit's at work. And so, so take heart if that's you. If you keep finding more sin, it's because God is meaning to pull it out of you. Mourning, though, doesn't seem very blessed, right? And some of you might be wondering, because I was wondering as I was writing the sermon, what about then, Pastor Brian, all the stuff you say about gladness? I like to talk about gladness because I think it's an important Christian virtue. You might know that gladness has been a theme of mine for some time. I believe that Christian gladness is one of our greatest weapons in spiritual warfare and one of our most underutilized weapons, by the way. We're called to be a glad people. Nothing so strengthens our spirits or confounds our enemies as our unrelenting gladness. So how does that fit in with this picture of blessed are those who mourn? Well, the answer is that mourning is not good just in and of itself. Jesus says that the mourners are blessed because they are comforted. So that's my next point. The first one was why mourning is necessary. Now we're going to talk about why mourners are comforted. So regardless of which kind of mourning we're talking about, I've given you two so far, personal mourning over personal sin, and then mourning over, we'll say, societal, you know, kind of sins of my neighbor's. Regardless of which kind we're talking about, we don't stay there just in a constant state of mourning. Those who mourn are blessed, not because they mourn and stop there, but because they receive the comfort of God. This means that, oh, this means that, and this is so important for you this morning. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and say, if you get one thing out of the sermon, get this this morning, that true comfort is only accessible through mourning. Okay? The comfort that Jesus means to give promised in Matthew 5.4, is actually, it, it's, it, it's sort of coming down the hill after you've climbed the mountain of mourning, to put it that way. The world hates mourning. What I mean is that 
the attitude of a lot of our present cultural moment is like, do whatever makes you happy because you have to be happy all the time. But the call to Christ is not a call. The call to follow Jesus is not a call to just be consistently bubbly all the time. In fact, at one point, Jesus even says in the Gospel of Luke, Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you, that is, woe to you who are comforted by the world now, who receive worldly comfort, because your mourning is coming later. In fact, and sorry, I lost my spot. John Stott, John Stott says, There are such things as Christian tears, and too few of us weep them. So to be clear, Jesus says, happy are those that mourn. Not only that, I'm going to take it to, and these are, these are the happy ones. If you want to know who the really happy ones are, it's those that mourn. It's those that have received this comfort. You see, much of the sadness and the fear and the anxiety that grips our culture like hands around the throat happens because we know how to mourn over everything except our sin. We know how to mourn churches. We know how to mourn the sins of our neighbors, the sins of our spouses, the sins of our superiors, the sins of our children, the sins of our fathers and our ancestors, the sins of politicians and journalists, the sins of enemies of Christ, but not our own. Not our own. This is why every Sunday morning when we come in here, we confess sin. We begin with glory, adoration, and that's meant to drive us to our knees. Think of Isaiah, right? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And what does Isaiah say in response? Woe is me. I'm ruined, right? That's the same kind of direction that our, that our service takes. This is why, this is why often I'm not, a, I'm not afraid to let the time of silent confession last an uncomfortable amount of time. Let that time be weighty. It should be. It should be. In 1662, Thomas Cranmer used these words for the, for the prayer before Holy Communion. He says, We acknowledge and bewail our manifold sins and wickedness. Why, though? Where's this, where's this going? What's the point of this acknowledging and bewailing it's the free forgiveness of Jesus. The reality is the greatest of all comforts is the forgiveness of sins that is proclaimed to you and pronounced on every contrite sinner in the gathered worship of the people of God. This is what Jesus does, right? He, he pours oil on our wounds. And of course, the promise given to us is that one day he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and mourning will be a thing of the past. Jesus understands that forgiveness of sins is what we need most of all before every other need and in the midst of every other need. I'm going to say that again. Jesus understands, whether or not we do, Jesus understands that forgiveness of sins is what we need most of all before every other need and even in the midst of every other need. How do I know that? Well, in, in the Gospels, in both Mark and Matthew, yeah, uh, there is this great story about how four friends 
bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus, right? They bring him on a bed, and there's no way they can get into the house where Jesus is to see him. So his friends dig through the roof of the house and lower him down. You might remember the story. So, I mean, think about that. The guy's paralyzed. He's on a bed. He's being lowered down. Nobody needs to explain to Jesus the problem here, right? And what does Jesus do? What do you expect Jesus to do? Well, you expect Jesus to heal him. That's his greatest need, right? That's why he's here. But what does Jesus do? He says, my son, take heart. Your sins are forgiven. And you can maybe sort of imagine the four friends being annoyed at that point. (laughs) Right? They work so hard to lower this guy down, to put him right in front of Jesus, because they want him to be healed. He wants to be healed. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Uh, Jesus, I'm not sure if you noticed, but he can't walk. He doesn't need sins forgiven. That's not his problem. He needs his legs healed. And Jesus does heal him, by the way. But he... But he actually goes so far as to say, like, I'm healing him so that you'll know his sins are forgiven. Because his main problem is not his paralysis. Because I'm going to heal him, and then what's going to happen? You know? He's going to die. He's going to walk around for a few years, and then he's going to die. And then on the day of resurrection, when I return, I'm going to raise him up, and he's going to run forever. And so in the midst of all our trials, Jesus brings us face to face with our most pressing need to have our sins forgiven. So we've gone through, can you put those up again? Why mourning is necessary, why mourners are comforted. Now what do we do with this comfort? What do we do with this your sins are forgiven comfort that's been given to us? Well, first of all, we confess it and we sing about it. Often, Christians often be confessing and singing about the present reality of your forgiveness. The present reality of your forgiveness. It's what we're going to do, by the way, right after the Lord's Supper. I don't know if you saw in your bullets in our, our post-communion hymn. is all about the forgiveness of sin. Redeemed how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed through His infinite mercy, His child forever I am. Now, what, what I'm getting at Confess and sing it. What I'm saying there, make sure you understand the difference between talking about the forgiveness of God as a theological or biblical concept and talking about how you yourself have received that forgiveness. There's a really big difference there. There's a difference between Jesus forgives sins and Jesus has forgiven my sins. Big difference. And so, first thing you do, confess it and sing it. Second thing you do with this comfort, you fight with it. Not argue with it, but fight with it like it's a sword in your hand. Armed with this comfort. It's a sword and a shield, and you fight with it. How do you, uh, what do I mean there? The comfort that Jesus gives when he says your sins are forgiven is both a shield against your despair, and it's a sword to slay all that which sets itself against true spiritual mourning. So how do, you weaponize, how do you weaponize your comfort? You know that the reality of the comfort of God's forgiveness means, this is one way, means that you are now supernaturally empowered to 
disagree with and to distrust your own feelings. The reality of the forgiveness of sins means that you, Christian, are now supernaturally empowered to disagree with and to distrust your own feelings. Can you even imagine that kind of comfort? Can you imagine the comfort that God has reserved for His children by giving us an objective word so that you don't have to trust your feelings? What I'm saying is that if you woke up this morning repenting of sin, but I don't feel forgiven, I don't care. And neither do you. You don't have to care. Because God's given you an objective reality that your sins are forgiven. That speaks a better word than your heart. So in a world, in our present moment, that it, which is in absolute slavery to feelings and impulses, forgiven people who have the comfort of the gospel on their side and in their hearts and on their lips can be free. Forgiven people understand that the forgiveness of God Almighty is, is their sword and their shield. By the way, wicked rulers, godless rulers know this. They know that guilty men who are full of shame are easy to control. Guilty men are without strength, without courage, and will not stand in the day of trial. And wicked men know this. It's why pornography is pervasive. It's why laziness is excused. It's why sin is explained away by a therapeutic culture, because guilty men are easy to control. When men are covered in dirt, it eats at them. And, you know, you try to make it go away. You try to be good. You try to measure who you are by what others think about you. Or, parents, this is a big temptation. You try to measure your own spiritual health by the spiritual growth and health of your kids. Or by the soundness of your own theology and going to the right church. You try to stack up all these defenses. What Jesus has done is he comes and he says, Son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. And if your sins are forgiven, the devil has nothing on you. When your sins are forgiven, you're set free. Now there's a fear here, I think. A fear that is, I'll say, attendant to what we might call extravagant forgiveness. Right? And the fear goes something like this. If evil people get forgiven, they'll just go on sinning. Hmm. You know, if, if you forgive evil authorities, if you forgive people who have hated or abused, well, they're just going to keep doing it. And the Bible says, no, they won't. Not if God sets them free. And we're so scared to believe in forgiveness that powerful. But the reality is that forgiveness, forgiveness does not drive people back into sin. It doesn't. Guilt drives people back into sin. Guilt makes people sin repeatedly. Forgiveness sets them free. Forgiveness is not what makes us sin. It is what sets us free. So what do sinners need in order to cease from their sinning? Not perfectly, but what do sinners need in order to find a sense of hope and victory over besetting sin? They need the verdict. They need the not guilty. So what is, what is the one thing that is hounding you today? What is the one sin that either you know very well or you're afraid to admit? That one thing that you just feel like you can't shake. 
I have a question for you. Did Jesus die for it? Did Jesus die for it? And maybe it is you need to upgrade an accident to a sin, <laughs> as it were, so that you, can, that you can receive the comfort Jesus died for that. Did Jesus die for it? Yes, you're free. Confess it. Confess it. You can't help God. You, you're not going to assist God in conquering your sin. He's going to do it. But you can confess it. Confess your sin to one of the elders that God has put here to help shepherd your heart. Confess it today when you come to the table. And be free. This is your light in the darkness, Christian, that you're clean. Is your sin grievous? Is it awful? Is it terrible? Is it horrifying? Yes! So mourn over it. Feel the weight. Feel the horror of it. Feel the scandal of it. Be shocked. Maybe even weep. And then be comforted. And then be comforted. And then be comforted. Your sins are forgiven. You are free. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. And so our Father, we come maybe even wanting to be taught how to mourn correctly or better than we do. And so help us to do this well that we might indeed take hold of the, take hold of the comfort that is promised to us. This is your gift to us and you are not stingy with your gifts. So we pray, Lord, again, just as we did during the pastoral prayer for contrite hearts that mourn over our sin. In Jesus' name, amen.